All right, if you'll turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Hear God's word for you this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come before your word, we ask that your Spirit would open our hearts and our minds. Draw us to you. Help us to hear your word clearly. All of us, give me the strength by your Spirit to proclaim your word clearly. Unite our hearts to fear you, to worship you, to glory in Christ Jesus. And Lord, it's in his name and for your glory and our good that we pray. Amen. Well, the day was December 11th. It was the year 2016. It was a Sunday morning uh, in Cairo, in a specific district in Cairo, and people were headed, as uh, they, they do on Sunday mornings, to worship. And at one particular church, El Batrasea Church, uh, otherwise known as St. Peter and St. Paul's Church, which is a, a chapel next to St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Cathedral. And at 10 a.m., A 22-year-old bomber clicked off a suicide vest, killed 29 people, injured 47 more. It was a horrific time, obviously, and surely an absolutely devastating scene, though sadly also one too well known by the Coptic believers in Egypt. What's amazing to me, as I read about this, is the way that a number of believers in Cairo responded. Because not long after the bombing, a group of believers gathered in public, on the streets, and proudly and loudly proclaimed the Nicene Creed as one. And I want you to see it, because I think it's powerful to do this. You're not going to understand a word, because it's in Arabic, but I think it's pretty wonderful to see. Sadly, when we hear Arabic like that and that chanting, we don't think that they're saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty. 
maker of heaven and earth and of things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Standing firm in the faith of the gospel in the midst of tragedy, and in the midst of persecution together. This, this morning, this, this is what we're going to look at in these verses from Paul. Verses packed full of encouragement and exhortation. They're verses that call us to understand some of the essential aspects of what it means to be in Christ, to be participants in the life of Christ. And I look at it and I see Paul addressing two points. The believers, that as believers, we are to be first steadfast in Christ, and that we are also to suffer for Christ. Steadfast for Christ and suffer for Christ. This is all part of living a life worthy of the gospel. So verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only, only. Paul uses that word to communicate that above all, that no matter what, this is what is of importance. It is this thing and it alone that matters. J. Mortier wrote, nothing else must distract or excuse them from this great objective. It must be their all-embracing occupation. See, this word only, it, it, it limits, it, it constrains everything, and it constrains it, interestingly, to the verb that follows, which by a bit of irony encompasses absolutely everything that we do. And then it's qualified by a phrase, worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that verb, that verb that, that encompasses everything that translated for us is, let your manner of life it's referring, obviously, to the way in which someone lives. And that verb is an imperative. I know sometimes in English, when it's let your manner, it, it doesn't come across as an imperative to me. Uh, it's more kind of a permissive imperative. But he's commanding you to have your life lived in a certain manner. We are as, we're commanded to live in a certain way as believers. Now, what way is that? Well, this word is actually, a, it's a fairly interesting word. It's built on the word for city in Greek. It has the word for city inside it. And so it has this connotation of, of living well or, or living properly as citizens, doing your duty. The New Living Translation uh, puts it this way. It says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. I think that's a pretty accurate rendering of what Paul is, is trying to communicate here. You see, later in chapter 3, he, he tells the believers, that, and he does this following a time where he, he points out how the ungodly or the enemies of Christ live, how they conduct themselves in a manner 
in a manner that is improper, that's unworthy. And he wrote in 3.20 then, just following that, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is stating that he and the Philippians believers, those citizens of Rome, are citizens of yet another kingdom. And in Acts 17, Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, and not surprisingly, the Jews are unhappy with them. And uh, some of the people that Paul has met with, uh, they end up dragging uh, him, uh, this guy named Jason, and some other believers into the, the, the court before the authorities, and they're shouting in Acts 17, 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There is another king. There is. They're, they're right in that. There is another king, and it is Jesus. And we are, as believers, to be subject to King Jesus. We are to live in this world, and we are in this world as strangers and exiles. As Peter wrote in his first letter, starting in verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the import of Paul's command in Philippians. Live in a manner that is worthy of citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul puts this within, within a specific parameter, right? He says, that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give a list. It's not going to work to do that. He doesn't give a bunch of hoops to jump through. Simply, he commands them, live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, the one, the, the, the Lord who has given you life. Live in a manner that reflects the person of Jesus, seeking to give glory to God. But how do we live worthy of the gospel of Christ? First off, I, I want to clear up any misconception. This is not saying live worthy for the gospel of Christ, that you can receive the gospel. You, you can't do that. You can't live in a way to earn the gospel. So we, the point is live in a way that reflects the gospel. So our second question then that, that I think we always need to clear up is what is the gospel? What's the message of good news? It is good news about Jesus and his living and dying, his perfect obedience to the law on our behalf, on, on, on the behalf of sinners, his taking the curse of being a lawbreaker in our place. It's the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is also the message of power for salvation, of the power of God, Romans 1, 16 and 17, 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It's a message in which there is no shame. And we must also remember that it is a message of grace. Again, we have done nothing to earn the gospel. And without it, we are hopelessly lost and condemned in our sin. Folks, this was the heart of Paul. We we see it throughout. He shared it with the Ephesian elders um, in Acts 20. He said, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his longing, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that his life would do that. His idea of living a life worthy was that everything he did would be a testimony to it. He sought to live a life of faith, and repentance, a life of trust and humility, a life of, of weakness so that the power of Christ would be displayed. He lived a life that saw the world through the lens of Christ and the gospel, through a lens of truth, so that hopefully people would see his life through the lens of Jesus. And Paul would get specific, though, as he moved on in, in chapter 1. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here, one of the things he does is he actually reinforces the idea of only with the statement that they should live this way whether he shows up or not. Whether I come or, or not, that's irrelevant, that's, that's unimportant. What is important is that Paul wants to hear good reports of them conducting their lives properly. They're to do that at all times. There, there are no off days as Christians. There's no cheat days. You know, you go on a diet or something like that and you get a cheat day. There's no cheat days as a believer. Now, positively, he commands believers to be those who are standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm. Now, that, that, that command was one that was used Uh, and and given to the soldier to tell him to stand his ground in battle, take up his position before an adversary. Now, I'm probably dating myself with this because it's hard to believe that this movie is 21 years old. But the movie Gladiator has a beautiful picture of this in it. And in it, there's this man, Maximus. He's the general of the armies of Rome and but through some deception, some, some outright shady work, he's sent away. He's exiled, and he becomes a slave, and then he eventually becomes a gladiator. Finally, he fights his way to the Roman Colosseum, and there he and probably 15 other men are giving nothing but spears and shields. They're set against an enemy that's, that's drastically more powerful than they are and more powerfully armed. And what they are is they're tasked with reenacting the Battle of Carthage. They are to play the barbarian horde, which was slaughtered by the Roman army. And as they stand there, Maximus calmly calls to the men, have any of you ever been in the army? Some respond, and he says again, he says, whatever comes out of those gates... We have a better chance of survival if we stick together. If we stay together, we survive. 
and then bursting through the gates are chariots and arrows flying. And invariably, a few of the men don't listen. Their fear overtakes them, and they quickly feel the pain of that decision. Maximus, though, continues to exhort the men to stay together, to, to be unified, and he calls out, lock up shields, stay as one. And so they get down and they put their shields together and the battle turns. They actually flip a chariot and then the battle completely just goes sideways. They don't end up losing. They rewrote history of the Battle of Carthage at that point in time. They stood firm together. They strove side by side to fight for a common cause and they not only survived, they thrived in it. They stood firm together. And folks, that's the, that's the imagery, that's the language that Paul calls to us to stand firm. We're to be steadfast and immovable in our conviction, in our belief in the gospel. We're to be unshakable in our faith, in our determination. We are not to ever flee the freedom of the gospel, nor are we to compromise in the gospel because, listen, the reality is there is pushback against the gospel in our world. There's pushback against the, the beliefs of Christians. And just, let, let me just tell you this. Stop being surprised by that. Stop being surprised when the world doesn't like our ethics and our Jesus. command here is to stand firm where there is resistance. You know, on a normal day, if I go for a bike ride, I don't think much about the ride. I just go. I, I listen to my podcast or music or whatever. But there have been days, and in the spring and fall especially, where the wind is wicked. We, we know that. We know the wind in Cincinnati, right? And I can't just go for a ride. I actually have to focus to stay upright on that bike, especially when it's a crosswind. Uh, if, if I don't, I'll end up falling over. Something, something not well will happen. I, I guess I do have another option. I could never get on the bike in the first place. But you know what? That's not an option in the Christian life. We're on it, and we're called to stand firm. It can be difficult on a ride like that, but it builds strength. It can be difficult as believers, but as we stand firm together, it builds strength. It makes me think of the words written by John Chrysostom in the 4th century. Nothing is so incongruous in a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. We stand firm. We don't seek to, to just give in and capitulate to the world so that it can be easy and restful for us. Folks, there are many things that threaten to knock us down as believers. First off, our own sin and pride and arrogance. But there is also a world that finds, as I said, what we believe to be foolish and backward. But there's also the lure of status and money, and position, and power. There's greed in our hearts. There's lust in a world that is over-sexualized. There's envy. 
There's overindulgence, there's selfishness, there's false teaching. Paul knows this. And he commands that in the face of that, together we stand firm. We trust in the Lord. We love him. We cling to the faith once delivered for all the saints. We, we seek to know the scriptures and we rest in the gospel. And again, we are commanded to do this and we are commanded to do this together. The guys that ran off on their own, it doesn't go well. We are to, in one spirit, with one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's calling us to to stand as one, unified and united in the Spirit and uh, in Spirit. So not only in in kind of how we, we think about stuff, but that we're united in the Holy Spirit as well. And we're together. That key idea in this is that we are to be unified in our striving, in our fight to stand firm. We're not to be divided and bickering over things that don't really matter. Let's focus on what is important. Focus of it, what what does he say? Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Folks, we can stand together with our Baptist brothers and sisters and our non-denominational brothers and sisters in Christ and our Anglican and, and on and on who hold firm to the faith of the gospel. And we are to do so. Folks, we must never, never turn away. We're, we're tempted at times to leave the purity of the gospel. And this is why we need each other. Because when one of us is weak, another is strong. And we can help one another in us. We need each other to to help us stand, to to strive with us, to help each of us recall and put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, to prepare our feet with the gospel of peace and take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit the very word of God, it's, it's all God's armor. It's his gospel, his truth that we rest in, that we stand in. And then Paul comes with the negative aspect of this exhortation. He says, and not frightened by, or not frightened in anything by your opponents. The, the picture there is he's saying, don't be like that horse that is overly startled that is startled at, at anything. It sees the little mouse running across and they jump and they throw the rider. We're not to be frightened in anything. No matter how powerful those who come against us, no, no matter how strong they may be, nothing is to shake our steadfastness in Christ. We are to side by side stand firm in the gospel. Now, I realize that the vast majority of, majority of us do not face imminent threats to our lives or our livelihood. We do not live in the same environment of the Coptic believers in Egypt. 
Someday that might change. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But even if it doesn't, we're still called to stand firm. But I think sometimes this might be harder for us. And we may be weaker for the lack of actual opposition. Yeah, sure, there are contexts in which someone could lose their job for stating something like there are only two genders or that a man should not swim against women or simply refusing to lie for the company. We could lose our jobs for those things. And yes, there are godless philosophies rampant in our country, and we need to learn how to stand against them for the sake of the gospel. We have to stand faithfully together for the truth and nothing but the gospel. And we also have to understand that I think sometimes this this low hum of of everything, and we're surprised by by any opposition that that we like to just, sometimes, I think sometimes we just like to fight. But we're fighting not for the faith of the gospel. Folks, we've got to have our focus right and stand firm. Not be frightened in anything by our opponents. It doesn't mean don't stand firm. Obviously, we do stand firm, but understand what we stand firm for and on behalf of. Let's not be so surprised by what goes on. Again, let's not be surprised when sinners sin. Because when, when we do, when we continue to live our lives standing firm on the faith of the gospel, Paul wrote and he, he said to the Philippians that they're standing firm and they're not being frightened is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what is Paul saying in that part of the verse? Is he saying that by our standing firm, our opponents become clearly aware of their destruction, that they are doomed for destruction? Honestly, I find that hard to understand, and the the, the grammar of this this verse is, is difficult. What I actually believe that Paul is saying here is that the steadfastness of believers, our standing firm, our not being frightened, is a sign to the opponents that they think we're going to be destroyed by the fact that we hold to a primitive gospel. But it's actually showing forth our salvation. One, one commentator offered this paraphrase, and I think this helps. He says, In no way let your adversaries strike terror in you. For although they see your loyalty to the truth as inevitably leading to your persecution and death, you see it as leading through persecution to the salvation of your souls. And I think this will become more clear as we move through the passage. Because I, I do think that, that seems more likely of what our opponents think, that, they, that, that, that we foolishly hold to this crazy thing called the gospel to our own demise. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose this. We're going to lose that. We're just foolish. Why would we follow that and not have the fun of the world? But Christians see the world differently. We have a different sense about it. 
Another wrote, Christians know that salvation is theirs in Christ because they know the story of Christ. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You see, that leads us into where Paul goes next. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Starts with four. That's a causal connection. What, what came before is connected now with what Paul wrote here. And, and he says, it has been granted to you. The opposition, the suffering, it's all part of the Christian life. It is not an anomaly. And it's actually been granted. It has been, it's the same word as, it, it, you, we could translate it, it has been graciously given to you by God. That's what Paul is communicating. This is the work of God. And what this text tells us is that suffering on behalf of Christ, just like believing, is a gift of God's grace. The believers who stood out in front of that church and chanted the Nicene Creed understand that. The Coptic believers who knelt on a beach in Libya and were beheaded, understood that. And I think this is hard for us to grasp, that suffering is a gift of God's grace. Moises Silva wrote, he said, believers find it difficult enough to accept the inevitability of suffering. We feel we're making spiritual progress if we resign ourselves to the fact that grief cannot be avoided. But here, The apostle challenges the Philippians' theology and asks them to understand their afflictions not merely as inevitable, but as a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with them. So we don't just say, oh, okay, I'll I'll accept it because it's going to come anyways. Instead, we go, Lord, this is your gift. What are you working in me over this? There's a whole different lens with which to see that suffering. And this is so counter to the spirit of our age. There is such a a prominent view today, and this is not just in the world. This is in the really big church. That I I might use that word church loosely here a little bit. But I think it's throughout that suffering only comes when you do something wrong. Suffering is viewed as nothing more than discouragement and you do everything you can to avoid it because you think that if you suffer, God is displeased with you and he's punishing you. Or some people have gone so far as to say you're suffering because you don't have enough faith. Lies from the pit of hell. It's the lie of the health and wealth of the prosperity preachers. Paul emphatically says, this is a wrong lens with which to view suffering. Suffering for Christ is the path to glory. It is God's gift to us to mold us and make us more like Christ. It was just this week, uh, the Book of Common Prayer was this prayer for endurance. They said, Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, 
But first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Why do we think that, our, that though our Lord went through suffering and pain first, that we can escape it? Or that we should if we're following the way of Christ? In Acts 14, Luke tells of Paul and Barnabas traveling through Lystra and Iconium and on to Antioch. And in doing so, in Acts 14.22, he writes that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Okay, sounds great, doesn't it? And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We like to skip that last part of that verse, don't we? He's actually saying, we must enter? That's a divine necessity. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul's encouraging the believers, and he tells us of why he sent Timothy to them, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Or Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Folks, this is a paradigm shift for all of us. And we'll keep going through it as we go through this letter because Paul continues to talk about this shift. I actually remember when I lived overseas again and um, met some various national believers and one, one guy I'll call Sam. At the time, he was probably in his 30s or 40s. He was not a lifelong believer, which is typical in that country. Um, but his job and his passion as a Christian in a, in a country that's 99% Muslim was to take Bibles to anyone and everyone he could throughout the whole country. He would go to places the male did not like to go. Okay? He would go everywhere. And on one of those trips, he went to the far east of the country. He was thrown into jail. He was beaten. He was roughed up and separated from his family for far longer than he had expected. But as he came back and he told that story, there was no regret or animosity or anger toward God at what had happened. He actually told it, full of joy and praise. He was overjoyed, and he said it, he was overjoyed that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That he suffered for living a life worthy of the gospel. Folks, there is so much packed into these four verses. I think it's difficult to grasp it all at once. Paul has this desire and he commands us as believers that we live a life worthy of the gospel. We live together in that as God's people standing firm no matter, no, no matter what comes our way, that we would hold fast to the gospel. 
And that in our suffering, we would see it as given to us for our growth and salvation. That we would know as well that that God's people are engaged in the same kind of suffering throughout the world. It's part of the life that we have the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, as Paul will write in chapter 3. Folks, Paul's desire, the Lord's desire, is that we live together as the people of God, as the church invincible in the name of Christ, in the hands of the Lord, resting and trusting in his promises, standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, there is so much here. And some of it's probably new. Some of it's harder to to reconcile and to think about. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes. Use your words. Lord, as always, if there are things that I've said that are not according to your word, Lord, that people would not have heard them but that you would draw us into your truth and that you would give us all the lenses to see this world through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.